Welcome to And Why Not, the movie podcast and the nerds who haunted themselves. I'm Stuart Moraine, and each episode I'm joined by a guest to talk about a movie that they love. Uh, for this episode, I'm joined by the creator of the comic Bold and the podcast series This Foul Earth, Mr. John Tucker. Um, just a heads up for this episode, if you listen to us regularly, um, there's no film clips in this episode apart from the trailer at the start, so it is just going to be myself and John talking without interruption about the film. Um, I do hope you enjoy the film talk, and as always, you can keep the conversation going in the comments on our socials, uh, in the Am Why Not Facebook, uh, Facebook group, or wherever you see this episode posted. Um, that's pretty much it for this top end, so without further ado, let's roll the trailer. I've done something new for this fight. I murdered a rock, injured a stone, hospitalized a brick. I'm so mean I make medicine sick. Too fast! Too fast! The king is going home to get his throne. Yeah, when I get to Africa, we gonna get it on because we don't get alone. So we try to get the champions of the sports world, champions of the music world. You know, it was handsome, it was articulate, it was funny, it was whooping ass too. <laughs> George Foreman was a phenomenon. The big bad monster and no one can whoop him. We're gonna fly in the air till we get to Zaire. This chump has got everybody scared. They thought he would take one of the world's worst beatings ever and he wouldn't give up. Scared of what? In a time of courage in the jungles of Zaire. I like to tell children of the world, quit eating so much candy. We must whoop Mr. Tooth Decay. I got one right here, one right here. A man named Mohammed created his own destiny. I mean, kill him. This is his moment of truth. Kids today will be missing a whole lot. They'll know about the legacy of Muhammad Ali because no matter what era you live in, you see very few true heroes. You out, sucker. Hello, John. How are you? I'm very well, thanks, Stuart. How are you? I'm not too bad, thank you. Uh, how's your year going? It's been a very busy year. Um, there's been a lot going on. Um, you know, uh, there's war. Well, I say there's war. I, I'm not involved in that. But it has been a very busy year for me as well. So. Well, I don't know. Since this foul earth hasn't been on, it all kicked off. So I'm not sure. saying that the two things are connected. But yeah. But yeah. yeah. Sorry, oh, audio, you, audio drop oh, out then. Oh, cut a bit there. Oh, you're right. Can you hear me? I can hear. Yeah, I can hear you. Yeah. yeah cracking. So we're gonna have to fire up the Zoom. I'll let it rain this story. Um, but yeah, how's things going? How's uh, how was the bold screen in the other night? Um, yeah, the Welsh premiere of Bold went very, very well. Um, we had a receptive audience, which was good. Um, so it's Welsh BAFTA qualifying now. I think, if it's nothing smashing. else. Um, it's having its uh, English premiere, uh, its in-person premiere at Manchester International Film Festival on Tuesday the 15th. Um, it's been entered into a load of other British festivals. Uh, it's been rejected from every single American festival we entered into. <laughs> I don't think they're, uh, you know, it's one of those sort of, um, uh, they're just not quite ready for that yet. But their kids are going to love it. Um, <laughs> See, I just thought they'd have got it cause it, just because it's black and white. Yeah, I mean, you never know, do you? I mean, it's very hard to tell what Americans are going to like. But, um, well, yeah. yeah. Um, Look at the Oscars. Well, yeah, all <laughs> um, the last 200 years. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Right, if you want to be broadly speaking. <laughs> yeah. 
but you know it's it's been doing well domestically. I've been I've been really happy the way it's been received, and um, you know still a fair bit of time left to go on it. But it was you know it was really funny seeing it up on a big screen. You know considering it started as just some stupid comic that I drew up on the night shift, <laughs> and and I swear to God I was like fifty fifty. I was like, is this too stupid? Like, is anyone gonna is anyone gonna understand this? But they did, and now it's a film. So you know that's it. That's that's the secret. Self belief. <laughs> well, no, it is. Yeah, definitely. Self belief and boredom. <laughs> yeah, hundred percent. Get a job you don't like, and while you're pickling your brain doing that, your inner brain will do the heavy lifting for you, and it'll occasionally say things to you like, "Draw a comic about the world's boldest man," and you'll think, "Oh, now there's an idea." And then fast forward a couple of years, and you're a you're a bloody cinema watching it. Just make sure you don't work for one of them companies that makes you sign a contract that says anything you create while you're employed by them is technically theirs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you have to be very careful. <laughs> HMV claim ownership of it or whatever. As an example, I wasn't saying that's where you're working. Um, but yeah, but no, that's that's awesome, man. It's Like I said, I really enjoyed it when it had its online and festival premiere last year. Oh, thank you. So, but, you know, we talked about that before so but yeah no um so i'll put the dates and everything in the show notes for the manchester festival and i retweet anything that luke retweet her tweets as well so yeah me connected too. to the <laughs> film not just as random I, I think i think it's i think it's very unlikely that you're listening to this podcast if you don't know the yeah. screening dates of bald <laughs> oh yeah it's very true <laughs> but yeah so all right anyway we're not we're not here to talk about bald this time although maybe we should but at some point um yeah. we're here to talk about when we were kings mm-hmm. uh directed by leon gast um star and slash featuring muhammad ali george foreman don king james brown bb king spike lee and norman mailer amongst others uh, uh released in... yeah george plimperton was no thomas yeah. hauser who's ali's biographer and there's a few others uh, bundini brown a few other people were sort of featured speakers yeah um yeah, because it's Spike Lee, Norman Mailer, George, um, and Plimpton. The, yeah, Plimpton, and a couple of others that are the, you know, at the time new interviews, and then yeah. the rest of it's archive footage, like James Brown, BB King's largely. Yeah, because because it, it, it was released in like ninety six, wasn't it? Yeah, 96? yeah, released in cinemas on the fourteenth of February ninety seven in America after a limited release in on the twenty fifth of October ninety six. We got it on the sixteenth of May nineteen ninety seven. Mm. Um, it grossed two million seven hundred eighty nine nine hundred eighty five dollars worldwide on an unknown budget, according to IMDb. Uh, won the best feature documentary Oscar in nineteen ninety seven. Yep. Bring that up. I haven't just slagged off the Oscars. And Roger <laughs> Ebert gave the film three stars out of four, saying it's it's difficult pulling decent quotes from Roger Ebert sometimes. Uh, it's a new documentary of a past event capturing the electricity of Muhammad Ali in his prime, which I think is one of the big selling points of the film. Yeah. Definitely. Um, but yeah, like I say, most of Roger Ebert's reviews seem to be him just going back over the film, which I love Roger Ebert as a reviewer, but it's when you're trying to pull a decent quote. <laughs> well, I mean, I, th- I think that I think the problem with uh, like the problem with like, the content, because I, I did read a few sort of like contemporary reviews of when we were Kings and, you know, Muhammad Ali hadn't been retired 20 years at that point. He, you know, he'd, he'd fought with, he'd fought in the past decade, you know, and he was slowly, sort of you know transforming into his sort of like what he became in the last sort of 
period of his life where he was essentially uh you know um basically like a statesman you know what i mean like yeah. a, like a sort of beloved public figure um i think it's very hard with especially with things like that even because i mean because it, it is um i don't know if we if we discussed when when the majority of the footage is from so the majority of the footage is from the rumble in the jungle the fight in 1974 yeah. but the film itself didn't come out until uh 20 years later or 20, 22 years later. Yeah, because there were issues with because it was always intended to be a film at the time, or sort of you know fairly close to the event, wasn't it? But there were legal yeah. issues and yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so I mean, it, it's difficult to. I think it's it, even though it had because it's very very difficult to um, to assess where a documentary about um, contemporaneous events is going to sit in history. It's very difficult to predict where it's going to sit in the Pantheon of film. But even with that little bit of distance it had, you know, 20 years since the rumble, I think it, I don't know. I don't know what it was. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not as familiar with how Muhammad Ali was being perceived at that sort of like transitional moment in his life. But I think, I don't think people quite, quite got what it was really a record of. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I think it is Spike Lee in it says about, Spike Lee was one of the only ones. Spike Lee and Norman Mailer, I think, had the best sense of the historical Yeah, and of, that of the importance of that film so that people knew who Muhammad Ali was because mm. I think it's yeah, I think it's Spike Lee says about, you know, people at that time without things like that wouldn't have any clue who Muhammad Ali was. Yeah. He also said that the kids these days don't know who JFK is and I'm not yeah. sure I'm not sure about that. <laughs> yeah, it was a bit <laughs> Yeah, there was just that Kevin Costner movie a couple of years ago, Spike. Yeah, remember? Yeah, remember that like in, insanely popular conspiracy theory documentary that won a load of Oscars, and also um, the last president who had his brains blown out of his head on videotape <laughs> within living memory of the majority of Americans. Kids these days, they don't know about. <laughs> it was a, well, they need to know because he's coming back. JFK Junior is coming back, isn't it? Are we getting into QAnon stuff? Oh, it is JFK Junior. Yeah. JFK Junior. Yeah. It'll be JFK at some point as well. They'll all be back. Don't worry about it. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's like the yeah, before we go down that. <laughs> my listenership just went up and dropped right right down again. Yep. <laughs> um, yeah. So, sort of, when did you first see the film? Was it at the time or? It, it wouldn't have been far off the time, I don't think. Um, my my father loved Muhammad Ali, and um, you know, I did to growing up because i because i remember when i was because we because i was sort of um i was brought up in barry uh for the first like 11 years of my life and um before we moved back to like the village that my parents are from for like you know years and years back and i remember there was um there was like a bookcase slash video uh, sort of you know what i mean the way you like mix the two and yeah. my dad had this like selection of boxing tapes because he was sort of sort of interested in it. I wouldn't say he was like a big boxing fan, but he had like you know, um, you know, great title fights of history. You know, they, where they do those like compilation tapes and all the rest of it. Yeah. And and he had when we were kings. And I remember seeing the cover of it, which was just like this like sweat stricken Ali just looking straight down the bottle. And I and I was sort of like vaguely aware of who Muhammad Ali was. Um, you know, and that I knew he was a fighter. And I knew he was good, and I knew my dad liked him because he was funny. Do you know what I mean? My dad's always been like a sucker for characters, the same way that I am. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like people who are funny. Yeah, because he was always that guy that was on that Parkinson clip they always used to show. Yeah. That's yeah, sort of my so. first interaction with Muhammad Ali. I didn't know him as a fighter until I think I saw the review in Empire for when we were kings, but then I didn't see the film until a couple of years later when I did a film studies course and they made us watch it. Because I've got zero interest in boxing. The same. I, I'm absolutely not interested in boxing at all. Um, I don't know any... 
other than you know other than like Tyson Fury, like I, I know I know I know who he is just because he's been in the news and stuff. But I've got no yeah. I've got no interest in boxing. I don't think I've ever seen a boxing match in full that Muhammad Ali wasn't in, except maybe that one where um maybe that one where Chris Eubank knocked someone out in like two seconds. I think I might have seen that one in its entirety. <laughs> I do remember seeing that one once because he just he leans on the ropes and he's just looking at the camera like you know. Do I shave my legs for this sort of thing, you know? Yeah. Uh, which I thought was funny. But um but yeah, I mean no, I've got no I've got absolutely no interest in boxing. But I remember you know seeing this tape and I remember watching it, I was just howling laughing. Just howling, you know, it's a great comedy. <laughs> but yeah. I mean just you know, well, I'm sure we'll get into the story and all that at the time. But I remember, you know, as a kid, like I didn't really understand like the political and the historical import of it, you know, much as people at the time didn't really, I don't think, you know, understand uh, maybe, you know, maybe some people did, and you know, Spike Lee seemed to, and I think I think Norma Mailer and Plimpton seemed to have some sense of what that would mean, because like you know, Plimpton made a very good point at the end that you know, um, you know, the the Oscar Wilde quote, you know, you destroy the things you love. He said, well, it's actually the other way around because the thing that Muhammad yeah. Ali loved destroyed him, and he was right. And I think you know, um, so I didn't I didn't understand the context of it. You know, I didn't I didn't, obviously when I was like that age, I didn't know about. You know um the conscientious objector thing i didn't know about joe fraser i didn't know who they were you know um didn't know george foreman was you know what i mean um but again he was the grill guy (laughs) why didn't i i'm not sure he was even doing grills at that point in 97 because he because he won one before no i mean it was 2000 i think so we just started coming on telly with the when i saw the film but again i had no idea who george foreman was until (laughs) that's weird he looks and sounds and that's the same name as the grill guy. Well, <laughs> well, that's it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I do remember seeing it at the time and really liking it. But I remember rewatching it when I was about, I want to say, I was around nineteen or twenty. I remember rewatching because I remember, you know, when you like you half remember things that you saw. Yeah. When you were a kid, and you think, oh, I remember enjoying that. I thought like Mystery Science Theater and stuff, which I remember seeing one afternoon once, and I never forgot it. <laughs> you know, um, I remember thinking, oh yeah, there was that Muhammad Ali film that Dad really liked. What was it? And I think I called my mum because I was living in Manchester. I was like, what was that film, Dad? Oh, Michael. <laughs> you had to, you had to come in. What? What's that Muhammad Ali tape? Oh, when we were kings. Ah, oh, brilliant, isn't it? Magic, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Yeah. So then I had to go and look it up. And um, you know, I watch it every, I watch it every couple of years. Like for me, like the Holy Trilogy for me is The Thing, The Sting, and When We Were Kings. Those are the three best films that I can come back to whenever you know what i mean but almost got a poetic ring to it as well <laughs> yeah that's it that's the only reason i like him because we're easy to remember but i mean you know but and you know because it, and it's not a long film you know it's 75 minutes it's available on the iplayer at the moment and under storyville for anybody who's listening in the uk yeah because although the I last didn't time get we... that message so i'd look to see if it was anywhere <laughs> on streaming then i'd done the search for when we were kings and all that came up was a liverpool documentary and i was like i swear i owned it so i turned yeah, the house upside down trying to find my dvd copy i only just remember that i'd never had it on dvd i only ever had it on video which that video is yeah. now long gone of course and then you'd message to say it was on storyville i was like fuck <laughs> yeah well the last time but, we did this with um the barkley marathons we said oh yeah it's on netflix and, it'll, and it's never yeah, seems and to then go it so uh, anyone who's listening to this now, if you fancy the sound of when we were kings, based on what we're going to say, uh, go and watch it now. I would. Cause yeah, search, search Storyville, and it will come up in one of the episodes of that. Yeah, it's, it's the last <laughs> one in the list. It's, it's listed alphabetically, so it's the last in the list. There's also There's a very good, good documentary about, yeah, um, very good documentary about Evil Knievel in there, which is made by the Jackass crew. Oh, cool. I might have to give that a look. I've got a few of them downloaded because as I was going through looking for when we were kings, I was like, oh, that sounds all right. That sounds all right. That sounds all right. And like I say, Misha and the Wolves is in there in the minute, and that was really good. Yeah. No, it's been a, it's a great series. It's really, really yeah. good. Some great stuff in there. 
Um, but yeah, no, um, like you say, so it's the story of the build up to the Rumble in the Jungle. Yeah. Um, Lee versus Foreman. Um, and sort of, again, it's very much the underdog story. It's weird to look back on it now because you always think of Muhammad Ali as pretty much undefeated. I mean, well, he was. Is, yeah, I mean, this but is it. Because... He's sort of in your mind, he's like, you know. Well, no, that's not a boxing kind of thing, but but no, and that's it. And when you watch it and you realise how against him everybody was. Well, this is it because they do touch on this in the film. Because like, so for anybody who hasn't seen it, like for context, um, you know, nineteen, yeah, you know, the nineteen sixty Olympics, um, Muhammad Ali, then Cassius Clay, or it might have been sixty four, no, sixty, sixty or sixty four. I'm not. I'm, I'm sure not sure either of those things, right? Yeah, but. I'm not sure. But um, you went to the um. Uh, to the Olympics and won a gold for America. And um, then he transitioned to a professional career. And, you know, as everybody knows from Muhammad Ali, he was mouthy. He was predicting what round people were going to go down. You know what I mean? And then delivering on it, you know, going around saying, I'm the greatest of all time. No one can lay a glove on me. I'm handsome. I'm pretty. I can't possibly be beat. Float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. Your hands can't hit where your eyes can't see. You just wouldn't shut up. Right. And then he comes up against Sonny Liston. Right. Who was, uh, who was the champion? Who was a big, mean bastard, right? Heavy hitter, but you know, was kind of, you know, getting a little, bit, you know, getting a little bit on in years. And every, you know, a lot of people thought, you know, because you know, Clay at the time, Ali, of course, said, um, oh yeah, it won't be a problem, won't be a problem. And Liston did push, did push him in that bout, but you know, uh, Ali beat him, massive upset. So he's this young champion, this you know, possibly you know, handsome, funny, you know, it, you know, and it, it, because he made for he was he was a lightning rod for headlines, you know, because half of America loved him. Well, no, actually, no, probably less than that. A lot of America hated him because he was you know an arrogant young black man who was successful, right? And he was from Louisville, Kentucky, right? And then he, I'm trying to think of the timeline. I can't remember exactly when he met Malcolm X. But he got quite friendly with Malcolm X before he was assassinated, and that led to him joining the uh, the Nation of Islam in the United States. We renounced his name, Cassius Clay, became Muhammad Ali um, under the direction of uh, Elijah Muhammad, who was the the leader of the um, the Nation of Islam at the time, and um, you know transitioned to becoming a, you know probably the most famous Muslim in America, which again you know drew ire from certain sectors, and then. Um, gets to 1967 and uh, America are ramping up uh, the war in Vietnam under uh, uh, Lyndon Johnston and then um, under Nixon. And he gets called up for active service because he was, he was originally because um, they kept the draft in America until I think the seventies and he was originally classified as one Y because he had um, dyslexia and um, Stu, can you hear me? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah. I was just. Listening. Sorry, it's really, I didn't come up for breath for a second. I just wonder if you're off doing other things. But uh, he was he was classified as one Y, which is um, only only to be called up in the event of a national emergency because he was dyslexic, and because um, and they asked him about that in the press and in typical Muhammad Ali style, he said, "I said I was the greatest. I didn't say I was the smartest." Right. And then um, as Vietnam starts picking up, they reclassified him as a 1A because they, they lowered the like the reading and comprehension or whatever it was that you failed on. They lowered the standards so that you could be enrolled. And he said, well, no, I'm a conscientious objector because, um, because as, a, as a Muslim man, I don't have a quarrel with the Viet Cong. Um, we do not engage in Christian wars. You know, um, uh, I, why should I go and fight poor people overseas when we're treated like 
shit here in America. Why should I? You know, why should I do? And, he was, and the thing is, he was the heavyweight champion of the world at the time, right? He was, you know, as, as famous an athlete as you can get, right? So um, he got uh, threatened with a jail sentence. He got fined like ten thousand dollars. There was real talk of him going to jail at one point because um, he went, ended up going to the Supreme Court in the end, who overturned it. But he was stripped of his boxing license, stripped of his title when he was twenty-five, right? And he didn't get it back for nearly four years. I think it was like 71 he started boxing again. He kept himself going by doing campus tours. So he was going around America speaking to, um, you know, interested parties at universities and all that. And um, and the, the documentary does touch on this in that he was, you know, a, a, a divisive figure and he was deeply unpopular in America at the time. But that really does, I think, downplay just how much he was hated yeah. by the majority of Americans at the time because – you know, like, cause I, and again, I read like contemporary like, news reports at the time, um, contemporaneous reports, and you know, you think of like, you know, recent sort of athletic um, controversies in America, like you know, Colin Kaepernick kneeling for the anthem. That was nothing compared to the things that were written about yeah. at the time. Do you know what I mean? And and I remember, um, I think it was Al Sharpton said that, you know, he said um, the civil rights movement had martyrs in that people were assassinated and killed in scuffles and all that. But those people didn't volunteer to give their lives. He said in terms of a predetermined act of self-sacrifice, he said Muhammad Ali may have given more than any other man because he because um, he knew that, you know, his income was potentially going to go down to zero and he could go to prison. And he could lose. And not only that, but between the ages of 25 and 29, that's your peak years if you're boxing. Right. Yeah. We, ne- we never saw Muhammad Ali at his best. We never saw it because he was banned. Right. So um, he gets the conviction overturned and he comes back and they organize um, a match with Joe Fraser. Right. And Joe Fraser beats him. Right. And he has a couple of soup can fights to sort of get him back into it. But then he goes up against Fraser and he beats him. Fraser beats Ali. And um, it goes like 15 rounds. And Ali really struggles with Fraser. And people thinking, oh, God, he's lost it. Um, he eventually did beat Fraser again in a rematch. But again, it was a long fight and it went to decision. And Ken Norton gave Ali trouble, you know. Um, then there yeah. were people saying, oh, he's not quite what he was. And then George Foreman comes along, knocks out George, uh, knocks out Joe Fraser in three rounds, no trouble, knocks out Ken Norton in two. You know, these are people who've really tested Ali. And Foreman just, just demolished him. You know, there's clips of it in the film, you know. So, I mean, the, so when, you know, Ali was scheduled to fight Foreman. Not only was he, you know, the tide, the, the tide of public opinion was turning because people were turning against the war in Vietnam and, you know, the civil rights act had been passed by then. So, you know, there was a bit more sort of acceptance of the, of the kind of thing that he was preaching because, you know, he, he, you know, he was preaching against Vietnam, but he was also um, giving like deeply like, you know, pro black, basically like black segregationist speeches, you know, black people should be with their own. That, that's that's what he was yeah. going saying, right? And you know that drove segments of America crazy, right? So he'd been doing all this stuff, and so not only was he still quite unpopular in certain segments, but then he was up against this monster, George Foreman, who was putting dents in heavy bags in training sessions, who would just wipe the floor with two people who really stretched him. And I think the film did a really good job of showing the convergence of all these different threads because like, again it's 75 minutes it's a short run time i think when we were kings could have easily been three hours you know yeah. if they'd drawn in all the sources and maybe gotten a few more extra people to speak you know um because i think there were a few people who were who were notable by their absence in when we were kings you know like um 
like Angelo Dundee, you know, yeah. Ali's trainer, you know, things like that. Because um, he's not even interviewed at the time, you know. Um, he did play a pivotal role, which I'm sure we'll get to later. But, um, you know, I think it, it does a very, very good job of pulling all these threads together to give you, like, the context of what was going on. Because they show the press conference where Ali says, you know, who here, who here has got George? Put your hands up if you if you think you know if you think George is going to win and it's just see your hands. And he goes, I know. He says, I know you got him picked. And he said, What's there to be scared of? Scared of what? And it's beautifully intercut with this bit of Norman Mailer, who is like sit basically sitting on his knees. He's like, he's like looking he's like looking at the camera like you've interrupted him at a dinner. He's like turned sideways to the camera. Well, I I believe in in all these private moments or whatever uh, uh you know wherever wherever his quiet moments were that he was deeply afraid. He must have been deeply afraid of George Foreman. And it cuts to Ali saying, I'm afraid of him. Afraid of what? You know what I mean? It's just masterful. It's absolutely masterful. But yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, the context of it, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, I think it's, and, and Norman Mailer wrote The Fight, which was sort of like a, one of those sort of like non-fiction, sort of like romantic, like a sort of like Truman Capote, like romanticized account of the past, yeah. which is a very, very good book um, about his time over in Zaya watching the fight. But I mean, I mean, it's it's impossible to think of like, because you know there'll never be anything like that again. You know, like the, all the context that of that and everything that was leading up to that moment. You know, there'll never be another there'll never be another event like that that goes the way that did. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. No, I know what you mean. It's um. Yeah, I mean, look, it's lightning in a bottle moment, isn't it? It's. Mm. Um. But yeah, I mean, just as a film as well it's because again it's easy to sort of dismiss it as a boxing movie which it is i mean boxing is a part of it but it's very much a small part in some ways it's very much about the psychology of a man and race yeah. at the time and the you know overarching issues of holding that fight where they held it well that's it i mean the back the boxing is almost an afterthought i mean it's, it's yeah. more I, I i'd say it's a, it's a very very good film about america even though it's mostly filmed in africa it's a very very interesting film about america and particularly black americans experiences you know because you know there, there, there's some fantastic shots in the film but one, one of my favorites um is sort of like an intercut sequence of um uh like the james brown show going on over in zaire intercut with foot like you know candid footage of actual people who are living in zaire going about their daily lives you know what i mean yeah so it's like this is like the this is like the black Americans who've come over as part of like the James Brown experience and they're all sequined up and dancing and playing instruments and all the rest of it and then it's intercut with you know scenes of like Mobutu controls Zaire you know yeah I just, I, yeah I mean well you know I mean I'm sure there's plenty for us to talk about but I mean I think it was you know as as good a documentary about America even though it was mostly filmed in Africa as. You know, and, and I think I think it's the best account of Muhammad Ali on film, because yeah, I know there's been a couple of different films. Like there was um, Ali with Will Smith, and um, you know, famously Apollo Creed, based on Ali, based on um, uh, Wes, shit, what was his name? But um, yeah, the guy who Ali thought was going to be a soup can after Fraser, who <laughs> really gave him <laughs> trouble. You know, who was who Rocky was based on? You know what I mean? Yeah. Um. Yeah, I mean, sort of as you mentioned it quickly, sort of I do wonder whether the film Ali would have happened without this one. I really thought this one sort of put Muhammad Ali back in the zeitgeist as 
the charismatic character that he was. I think if it had been a different boxer, it's not as interesting. As, it's an interesting story, but it's not as interesting a story. I think. I I I don't know if yeah I don't know if Ali would have been made, but I think if there was ever going to be like a biopic of a boxer, it could only ever have been Muhammad Ali. Yeah. Because you know, because like BBC called him like sports personality of the century, and I think that's it's not even close. You know what I mean? Like if you want to talk about what someone's done for their sport in terms of like not just box office, but in terms of you know elevating it to almost like a you know, I know boxing fans consider it an art, but making it artistic for you know for everybody. You know, what I, mean? I don't think anybody's done what he did for it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's not, no, and, it's, um, and not just what he did for boxing, what he did for rap music, what he did for like professional yeah. wrestling, you know, all these other areas that he touched, what he did for politics, civil rights. You know, I mean, there's, there's, there'll never be another. That's the thing. Like, you know, the, the, you know, I, there will never be another. There'll never be another person who, who I think will, you know, I don't know. You know, maybe, maybe circumstances will allow for the rise of somebody like that again. But I just think he was just the, the, the right man at the right time. Yeah. In a, in a way that we'll probably, we'll probably never see again. I don't think. No, and I think that's very much part of the issue with that. I, I mean, I like the film Ali, but it's a h- uphill task for anybody to play him and capture that. That's what I love about this film so much is, like Roger Ebert says, it is capturing that electricity that was Muhammad Ali. Well, that's it. N- nobody's done it. Like, you know, Will Smith's good, but he's not Muhammad Ali. No, that's he's not it. As funny. He's not as funny as Ali was. You know, one of my one, like one scene in the film I really like. I, I like the whole film, but like one scene I really yeah, no, like is when he's when he's at the very beginning, right? And he's like he's sitting around outside the press conference. He's got that like that olive green, almost like military jacket on, and they're talking to him about the anchor punch against Sonny Liston because there was a, an accusation that Sonny Liston might have thrown the fight because it looked like he went down without being hit, and he said the anchor punch. He said you know the uh, the they brought in this machine and it goes, it goes, and it measures in one hundredth of a second. It's like, like that, really fast, right? And they measured that punch from the time that I started to throw it to the time it hit. It was four one hundredths of a second. He said, that's how fast it was. And when I threw it, everybody blinked and they all missed it. <laughs> and everybody laughs, but it's a classic wind-up story. Do you know what I mean? Like. So when you when you watch me, you gotta hold your eyes open to make sure you don't miss anything. You won't see me, man. Do you know what I mean? And the people around him are just crying. Like even people who even people who were who who, who were trying to like get him on the record couldn't help but laugh, you know, because they had like archive footage of him being spoken to in like the early '60s, you know. And people who are obviously trying to hold him to account and like get a serious answer out of him, they can't help but laugh. Do you know what I mean? Because he he was he was just incredibly funny, you know. I mean, genuinely one of the funniest. Not even sports people, just one of the funniest characters of the 20th century, you know? Yeah. Yeah, like I say, it's just... Yeah, like I say, I mean, I I knew him from... They always used to show that Parkinson interview. Mm. So I always knew him from that anyway, so I knew his person. I had no idea he was a boxer, because as a kid, you just didn't really take that sort of stuff in. It's just no. a famous person. Well, not yeah. even a famous person, just a guy on TV talking. Yeah, but even as a kid, he's such an engaging presence to listen to. Yeah, I think that's why he was so popular on talk show circuits as well. Oh, Not yeah, he did a lot of, of talk shows, but oh, well, he, he did a fair few. He, he, and he did, um, you know, this is your life and all that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, he, I mean, he didn't, he didn't do as many as he, as you know, let's say he was alive today, he didn't do what he would have done now because there wasn't really. Do you know what I mean? I think he was, he was more famous as a speaker here. I think. 
yeah. than in America. You know, in America, I know he did the college lecture circuit and all, but you know, to the best of my knowledge, I don't think he had the. Um, I don't. I don't think he had. I'm trying to think of a word for it. I mean, I, I, he he was loved over here. I was, uh, you know, as far as I can tell, people did love him, especially younger yeah. people loved him. I mean, you know, he did come over here and he fought Henry Cooper back in the day, and even Henry Cooper said, you know, he was incredibly popular, and he was very very funny. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah, I, yeah, I can imagine he's incredibly frustrating to fight as an opponent when you're trying to do that pre-match all the bullshit you do the smack talk and whatnot well, <laughs> i imagine, I imagine kind of invented right, that. a lot of fighters seem to sort of respect him after the fact i mean they probably respected him at the time but yeah i mean there's a there's a documentary um i think it came out like 2013 it's called uh facing harley and where they interviewed all his surviving opponents um because he, he wasn't dead at the time but they interviewed everybody who'd ever faced him who was still alive and henry cooper was still alive at the time and um and Joe Fraser and there's a there's a great uh, and it's an interesting isn't you know it's not it's not as good as this one but it's an interesting documentary but um th- there's a great clip um of when Muhammad Ali was on This Is Your Life and I think this was um oh, it must have been like the late seventies or possibly the early eighties yeah. um because him and Joe Fraser had, had a really it, it had gotten quite ugly at times between them um in the the press and everything you know like Ali called Joe Fraser like an Uncle Tom you know and it it's got quite unpleasant. And um, but as inevitably they do, they end up making up because at the end of the day, you can't help but like him. And he would he would give credit where it was due because um, yeah. Henry Cooper said that because um, Henry Cooper put Ali on his ass with a hit. And if it hadn't been for the bell ringing for the end of the round, that, that may have been it for him. But um, uh, Henry Cooper came out to greet him on This Is Your Life. And Muhammad Ali said, "I'll tell you something, man." He said, uh, "He said you hit me so hard, my ancestors in Africa felt it." Right? <laughs> and everyone laughs, and he gives him a big hug. You can't help but like him. But, but Joe Fraser came out, and because you know they, they do the thing where like the person speaks and you don't see him. It's like, well, yeah. a friend for you from Philadelphia. And Ali's going, "No, not Joe Fraser, not Joe Fraser." And he comes out, and they hug like they're, they're long-time old friends. And bearing in mind, you know, in like Manila and that, they were trying to kill each other. They yeah. were they were out for they were a pair of them were out for blood right, and Joe Fraser tells his stories as um there was a time when I think when Fraser was champion after Ali had been banned because Ali never lost it the first time around he just got stripped of it because of the Vietnam thing and Fraser picked it up and um he had to give Muhammad Ali a ride to New York or something like that so it was the two of them in the car and he said we were just chatting you know all congenial and all that you know talking about each other's families and everything and we get out to go into a shop for like a you know a snack and a drink. And we came out of the shop, just the two of us, you know, and um, somebody said, hey, on the street said, hey, that's Joe Fraser, Muhammad Ali. And he said, and it was like like that. And Muhammad Ali was like, Joe Fraser's a bum. He's got my title. <laughs> he said he just went off in like a 10 minute. As soon as he realized somebody had seen him together, he just started immediately cutting a promo on Fraser. And he said, if you don't get in the car, he said, I'm going to knock you out here and now. <laughs> so he shoved him in the car. They go half a mile down the road and then they realized and he forgot someone else to get out to go into another shop. Hey, it's Joe Fraser Muhammad Ali. Joe Fraser's a bum. He's got my title. He ain't worth nothing. But he said that's, you know, but you can tell there's a genuine affection between Ali and Fraser. And much as there was between Ali and Foreman. Yeah. Because you know? when this won the Oscar, Foreman helped Ali up the stairs. He obviously had Parkinson's in his later life. Yeah. He wasn't the best on his feet. But, you know, like they made it. I, I, I can't remember any, anyone from facing Ali saying that they still held a grudge against him. You know? Because he would call, he would call his opponents. Like once all the dust had died down, because you know he was 
you know a master tactician and i think he he beat foreman before he got in the ring i think yeah at the rumble in the jungle i mean it's all and again i think the, the film captures it brilliantly because as, as like a potted timeline of it sorry to give any spoilers for the rumble in the jungle but you know like no um, i mean generally with these discussions and i'm hoping most people have seen the film before they come into this <laughs> well I, th- I think if we're re- re- i think if we're referring to a nearly 50 year old event I think yeah we can probably assume that if you were interested yeah. you'd have found out by now but um yeah so don king who at the time was like a fledgling boxing promoter not not what he became in the years that followed um, he wanted to put on Ali versus Foreman for the title because you know Ali had been stripped of it and he had a legitimate claim to it because he hadn't been beaten for it. So he um, so he went and got a signature from Muhammad Ali saying that he'd fight George Foreman for $5 million and he got a signature from Foreman to say the same. So now he had two contracts, but he didn't have $10 million. So he started looking around for the money and um, uh, Mobutu, who was the dictator of Zaire, which is now the DRC, um, went from being Zaire to the DRC in 1997, who had just had this horrible sort of civil war uprising um, in Africa and had established like a one-party state there. He put up $10 million, which the country could not afford, really, to get the fight there, to legitimise him and to legitimise the country. You know, because Ali said at the time, you know, countries go to war to put them to put their names on the map and a war costs a lot more than $10 million. Yeah. So, um, so they go over there and they put on a... Um, uh, like a music festival at the same time they make it into a big event um you know so like james brown goes over bb king and their music is kind of intercut throughout the film like they kind of soundtrack the film but not you know it's like live soundtrack yeah it works really well i love the soundtrack to the film it's got a great soundtrack it has got an amazing soundtrack right so they go over there and before they even go ali is already talking 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 i'm gonna da- i call george foreman the mummy because he can't you know he moves too slow he's never gonna lay a glove on me i'm gonna dance i'm gonna dance i'm gonna dance he's never gonna touch me right and people are laughing politely but you know as as norma mailer said you know a lot of most people including howard cosell who was sort of like a, a famous like double act with ali whenever they were on television together yeah there's footage of cosell talking he said I don't think we'll see Muhammad Ali. Um, yes. you know, it's like I suspect Muhammad Ali will retire. You know? and this is a, this is a friend talking, right? So and people, you know, people did not fancy his chances purely purely because you know he was a bit older. Foreman was young, and again, it's it's very hard to 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 say if you only know George Foreman as the the George Foreman grill guy, and again as um. George Plimpton put it at the end, one of the most affable people in American public life. Yeah. When he was young and at the height of his powers, he was a killer. Right? And he was a really hard hitter. You know, he, he knocked knocking people out in one round, two round, three rounds. You know, he, he was not in the ring for long because he was just such a heavy hitter. So um, he's already winding up, right? So they go over to Zaire and you see Ali, you see um, Foreman on the plane with a delegate from the government who is going through some basic French with um, uh, Foreman about how to greet Mobutu when he arrives, right? And it cuts to the Ali plane, and Ali is in the cockpit with the pilots. <laughs> he says, I never knew we could fly planes, you know? Like they, never, they would never let an American black man fly a plane. I didn't know we were capable of this. They speak three languages. We don't even speak English. Good. And people are laughing, right? <laughs> But he's already, I mean, th- this was Ali's, I, I think, one of his true, you know, powers in a way, is that he was, 
even though he did things that made him very unpopular with certain segments of America, he was on the right side of history for the vast majority of the things he said. But yeah. he was also very, very good at um at winning people round, right? And he didn't have to do much to win people around because, you know, people were aware of his political record before he came over to to Africa. You know, he'd said about, you know, wanting to better inform the American black people of their their heritage and their their kinship with Africa and all the rest of it. And that had traveled there before he arrived. But then you see Foreman get off the plane and he immediately drops a huge clangor because he's brought his German shepherd dog with him, which is what the police had used during the uprisings. Uh, so the average um, citizen of Zaire did not think too kindly of a German shepherd dog being brought into their country by a fighter. Right. And then Ali gets off the plane and he's talking with people, you know, how many people live here? How many George Foreman fans are here? How many Muhammad Ali fans are here? Do you know what I mean? He's, he's just talking to local reporters. He's, there's no, you know, you don't see Maybe Foreman did do a bit of that, but you never see it, right? You get the impression that Foreman was very much like in training camp, only giving statements when he was asked. And all the while, you see Ali working the country. He's out on the road, running with people, with ostensibly no security around him. He's out there amongst citizens in the country. And as, it start, and as it starts in the beginning and eventually builds up throughout the film, the people around him are chanting Ali Boumaye, which means Ali kill him, right? Yeah. And as soon as Ali picks up on this, he's the one starting the chants. Because around the middle of the film, he's just running down the road and he's like, Ali Boumaye. And then it's 20 people all around him, all chanting it. Do you know what I mean? So he was, he was turning basically the entire country against George Foreman. You know, I think if George Foreman had had like an entourage like boxers have now, they would not have allowed him to take that German shepherd and they may have encouraged him to do a bit more of what Ali was doing. But Ali was a, a great, again, statesman. He was a great leader. You know what I mean? A, a great speaker, you know, charismatic, funny, charming, you know, and he tapped into something there that foreman didn't really have a chance to you know and there's a really interesting segment yeah. probably my favorite scene in the whole film right it's just before the fight because you know they get over there and they're doing training camp and the the fight gets delayed because um a sparring partner throws up an elbow to protect himself from foreman and uh, cuts his eye cuts his eyebrow so they have to stitch him up and the fight's delayed by three weeks um so they get a bit more time over in Zaire and um they delay the music festival as well so like in the music festival you know james brown bb king um oh god i'm trying to think of a few of the others but there, you know, there's a, a, a lot of um you know uh, predominantly the spinners wasn't it um, spinners that was it yeah um but predominantly black um entertainers right and um they show footage of the festival and there's a, a montage which is set to um james brown's doing its death um or um gonna have a funky good time as it's um otherwise known um and it's this very it's, the, it's just one riff throughout the entire song it's da, 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 and it just plays and plays and plays and you see the basically a montage of the entire festival and ali running through the streets and people going absolutely crazy for him you know chasing behind him keep oh. yeah. <laughs> my watch my watch trying to chip in right um, so there's kids running behind him and you know people are just losing their minds for him but there's one scene in it where James Brown is performing and they cut to the crowd who are behind barbed wire at this thing right and a spotlight hits the crowd and it's in the middle of the uh, you know it's this sea of people and in the middle of the crowd a spotlight hits and there's Muhammad Ali 
behind the barbed wire in amongst all the people with his arms up in the air and obviously there's no microphone on him but you can see from his hand motion that he's trying to get an Ali Boumaye chant going <laughs> <laughs> and I remember seeing that because it looks like he's having the time of his life you know the crowd is just amped for this James Brown show and he is he's got an arm up and he's throwing it around you can see him going Ali Boumaye and everyone around him is just no one's looking at James Brown at this point they're all looking at Ali I remember seeing that and thinking, God, do you know what I mean? Like, there's no one else like it. No one else like that, you know? I mean, I just, yeah. I, I'm in awe of Muhammad Ali, truly. Like, I, I think he would, honestly, I think he was just such a wonderful character in that. And I think this was probably better than better than the the titular biopic, better than Facing Ali. The, this was the best, the best account of Muhammad Ali. Because yeah, because there's been a few Ali documentaries and a lot of them seem quite dry. I think I think a lot of them I think a lot of them get too bogged down in like you know um, his his politics yeah personal life because you know it's it's not you know it's no secret that Muhammad Ali got given some bad advice right he um, he had management who didn't exactly have his best interests at heart he fought for too long he should have got out after Zaire he should have retired yeah. after that is you know but he but, he, but as he said he loved it. he couldn't not do it because he loved it. Um, and then it was, you know, and then the basically, basically every Muhammad Ali documentary has to sort of like set the slider. How much of this are we going to set for the Alzheimer's stuff? Not the Alzheimer's, the Parkinson's stuff. Yeah. You know, like, um, and I think, I think when we were kings strikes the perfect balance because they contextualize the fight. So he wouldn't go to Vietnam. He got stripped of his title, lost all this money, but but most tragically lost all this time when he was at the prime of his life. And then he comes back a little bit slower, a little bit worse. You know, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't 1964 Muhammad Ali. He yeah. wasn't 1965 Muhammad Ali, right? This is 10 years after a lot of Americans saw him for the first time. You know, as he said, running from Sonny Liston. But Sonny Liston was better than George and he hit harder than George, right? Um, and now he's assumed this more of a sort of, um, this sort of like philanthropic, you know, um, voice of Black America role. You know what I mean? Because you know he, you know, um, his his trainer Bundini. Well, one of his trainers, Bundini Brown, says, you know, he's he's a prophet for Elijah Muhammad. Do you know what I mean? This is real. This is not a Hollywood set. You couldn't write this, and he was right. You know, he, he said it before it really came true, but he was right. You couldn't have written what happened in Women with Kings. You know, yeah. And I think because it captured that side of him, it captured. Probably is uh, maybe not his most flamboyant athletic performance, but definitely one of his most memorable, right? But it also, you know, it touched on what happened to him afterwards. You know, he fought for too long; he should have got out. And it also did kind of contextualize it in the legacy. So I think it, I think it's good that it, it's good that that footage did get held up because I think having that distance from it allowed it to be um, sort of rapid a little better in the context that it sat in. And yeah. I think that and I think that's only aged better with time. Because obviously Ali lived a further 20 years after the film was yeah. made, you know. But there was a lot made of him being, you know, a Muslim, a famous Muslim in America at the time of like the 9/11 bombings. You know, when he he went on television and gave a statement with Will Smith, you know, saying like, you know, Islam is a religion of peace. You know, you all know me. You know, this isn't what Islam's about. You know, please take my word for it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, trying to try use his profile. And I think, you know, I think if, if you if you just needed someone to know let's say you know because you know every day thousands of kids are born who've never heard of Muhammad Ali right let's say you need to show somebody something and say right this this is who Muhammad Ali was for me I think that is probably the best thing you could show them it's not got you know it doesn't have all the detail but it, but it, it, it is 
it is quite heavy on detail because they show his mother who talks about how he got into boxing. You know, he got his bicycle stolen and he went to that local cops boxing yeah. class. It covers the Olympics. It covers Sonny Liston. You know, because I mean, really, you can divide you can divide Muhammad Ali's fighting career into basically three chapters. You know, it's Liston, Fraser, Foreman. Yeah. And that's it, right? Um, it does cover a lot of ground, and I feel like it doesn't get bogged down in, you know, are these politics of his right or wrong? You know, um, was was this? You know, did he? You know, it, it, it's not because like, I've seen a lot of documentaries about him, like you know. The, without his involvement where it's somebody just like editing footage together and like lots of like ken burns photos or like zooming in and out yeah. of him, you know and they all and they're all you can tell they're really uh, you know really struggling like oh how much do we mention the nation of islam how much do we mention malcolm x you know and you don't have to be like that because you know they they show a picture of him with malcolm x in the film right yeah. and in the full nation of islam garb right so you know they don't make any bones about it it's just look this is what was happening at the time this is who he was this is what he was known for people hated his guts and they all thought that george foreman was going to knock his head off you know because like, yeah, the bookies yeah. at the time had him at like i think at one point they had him at 60 to 1 to win <laughs> muhammad ali who was like you know the i mean i think the greatest heavyweight boxer that ever lived he was 60 to 1 at one yeah. point into george foreman which is you know it seems crazy now but at the time that was the smart money, you know? Yeah. No, I mean, sort of, like you say, as a documentary, it does what it needs to do. It's very much about that event, but it gives you just enough backstory and it gives you enough, just enough of what happened afterwards up to the point of the film. Yeah. That, you know, if you want to do that deep dive after, but you've got everything you need for the context of this yeah. story. 100%. Whereas I think a lot of the other Muhammad Ali ones, and like you say, there are some decent ones made with, the blessing of the, him and the family kind of thing there are also the uh yeah i mean using old public access news footage and that sort of thing and i think the problem it. with those is that they try and cover too much and don't focus on anything in particular well that's it i, I think like it's you part know, of the it, problem with the ali movie which as much as i like the ali movie it is too much it's too, yeah, it's too it much. could have done with being but then i suppose the most exciting thing has already been done in the documentary and well, they could have done Manila. They could have done Fraser. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah. You know, or they could have done Liston. You know, they could have just. Felt, the best scene in that is Liston. Yeah. You know, because you know now I don't know who play Muhammad Ali now. Probably bloody Will Smith's rotten kid. But it would be him. <laughs> him versus Idris Elba. Well, I remember at the time everybody wanted um, Cuba Gooding Jr. Didn't they? Oh yeah. I think he would have been. Yeah. yeah. Cuba Gooding uh, Jr. Cuba Gooding Jr. He, been good. he looked more like. He looked more like Ali. Yeah, he won me round with that fucking OJ program, that American Crime yeah. Story. God, he was good in that. Oh, yeah, that was amazing. Dear Lord, but um, you know, I mean, if they, you know, if they were going to cast it, but this is the thing, like, it's it's basically with that, you you you've got to find someone who has enough of the physical resemblance where you're not going to go, oh come on, right? But also can talk like Muhammad Ali. It doesn't have yeah. to be a perfect vocal, like, uh, you know, like a sound alike. But you have to be able to rattle it off like that because he was he was doing it almost like without thinking. He was just you know like some of the yeah. stuff he was coming out with. Like, you can tell like some of it was like pre like you know rehearsed and that. But he was just naturally just so funny. You know what I mean? Like yeah, fast. You know how fast I am. Last night I cut the light out of my hotel room, hit the switch. I was in the bed before the room was dark. You know like that. That's a that's a really fucking funny joke. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like he was so funny. And I mean you know. But yeah, I think as like um, 
I think the the problem with a lot of the, a lot of Ali films have right is that they want to be the um, God, I'm trying to think like the modal value of his life you know oh, no the mean value yeah. sorry they want to take a perfect average when what you really want is the median and that's what when we were kings is yeah you know it's the dead center it's exactly it was him at as close as we're going to get to his peak you know in that it wasn't yeah it wasn't his most like balletic performance but it was definitely one of his smartest right it was everything it was everything that made it because you know there's been a lot of like debate in like the last 50 years or whatever about how ali would have done against you know joe lewis tyson all the rest of it and you know you look at someone like tyson who was you know a machine who was unstoppable and all the rest of it right yeah maybe ali wasn't like that but he did have something that none of them did you know because yeah. You know, well, we you know, might as well talk about the fight now. But you know, everyone because he'd been saying, oh, "I'm going to dance, I'm going to dance." He's never going to lay a glove on me. And then he gets in the ring, and like you know, because it was at like four in the morning because I had to go out at like a sensible time on American television. Yeah, that's and, it. And um, it was in this massive outdoor stadium. Um, before we get into this, right? Norman Mailer tells a great story about that um, Mobutu. You know, he was he was he was, a, he was a classic sadist. You know, he was the kind of guy if, if you see him coming to a bar, you think, "My God." who are the poor women associated with this fella <laughs> and he says um uh, beneath the stadium there were uh hundreds of uh prisoner cages and he rounded up a thousand organized criminals from the nearby area and he locked them up and there is uh there was a rumor going around i suspect it may be true that he took a hundred of them at random and uh and killed them uh because you know if you're an organized criminal and you make a life out of it <laughs> uh you've got connections who can get you out of trouble and by doing that he said your connections mean nothing I am Jehovah. I will blast you out of existence if you fool around with me. <laughs> it's just, and it's intercut with footage of Mobutu, who is just cutting around in like, you know, a leopard, like a leopard skin army hat. You know what I mean? Like, it was this yeah. deeply sinister dude. Do you know what I mean? Like, really, really bad, really bad cat. Like, so it's this outdoor stadium. Um, and, you know, there's always like press and that around the ring, including Mailer and Plimpton in that wonderful picture they showed. Um, and it's four in the morning, and Ali says, oh, "I'm going to dance. I'm going to dance. He's never going to lay a glove on me." Blah blah blah. And he's, and you know, in in practice, in his practice sessions, because you know, because Norman Mailer says, "I don't even know. I don't think he told anyone he was going to do it," because in his um, training camps where people were watching him, he was practicing his dancing, you know, like his his ring work, and so was Foreman because he was expecting Ali. Because they said, you know, Foreman was good at cornering people, so he brought in a bunch of you know like featherweights to try and dance around to, to replicate what he thought Ali was going to do. So Ali gets in the ring with him. And first of all, he starts throwing a bunch of right-hand leads at Foreman. And again, like Norman Mailer is a great, um, Norman Mailer. Yeah, and I, I love the explanation of that. They absolutely carry the same. Because Norman Mailer says, you know, um, right-hand lead, uh, you know, because you, if you're coming out in an orthodox boxing stance, your right hand is furthest away from your opponent's face. So you've got to reach across your entire body to hit them with it. Uh, nobody uh, sparring with George Foreman for $5 a day is going to insult him by throwing a right-hand lead. Because uh, it's a great insult to a professional fighter because it means you think you can hit him with it. He's so slow. <laughs> so so that he said that rightly George Foreman hadn't had a right-hand lead thrown at him in probably 10 years. So he didn't know what to do about it. So he got five good dings to the head right from the off. And he gets thrown into this rage. And Ali just leans into the ropes. And Foreman starts wailing him. right? And, you know, because they show the thing of, of the heavy bag where he put a split in it. right? And he's just absolutely wailing Ali's sides and all the rest of it. And you can see he's fuming. right? And this is how 
Fraser and that went down and Plimpton, the English guy who was over there, I said, I saw Ali um, going into the ropes and I, I leaned over to Norman and I said, the fix is in. Because, you know, if, if you're leaning into the ropes and you're taking a hide in, you're halfway to the floor, right? And, um, but, you know, he said he just took it and took it and took it. And then by about the seventh round, you can see Foreman starting to look a little bit tired. Right? These, hit, these hits aren't quite as hard as they used to be. Oh, dear. He's tired himself out. <laughs> and you can see the minute that Ali realizes right now, right? Because he pushes him away and, uh, and Foreman staggers back and it's just dink, dink, dink. And down he goes. And that's the end of it. You yeah. Know? And, cause, and years later, they were speaking to Foreman about it. And he said, um, he said, I was really laying in to him. He said, around the middle, around like the fourth round. He was he was in my, and Norman Mailer says it as well. He says, I, I could see Ali talking to him. He says, oh, you got George. You disappoint me. I was told you were going to hit me harder than that. Come on, George. What's the matter with you? Right? He's shit talking him as he's getting wailed by him. Right? And then around the seventh or eighth round, when he actually does flick the switch, Foreman, I remember seeing a thing with Foreman said, he looked up at Ali, and Ali could see he was spent and he said this is a bad place to get tired george <laughs> <laughs> and it and you know and and there's, there's some great lines in there because you know because again plimpton and mailer carry that segment and plimpton said he, he he was leaning he was leaning backwards into the ropes and the, the way i described it it was almost as if someone was leaning out of his window trying to see if something was on his roof <laughs> you know <laughs> But the one thing that nobody mentioned in this, which did, uh, no, Norman Mailer mentioned in his book, it was probably cut for time. And the reason why I think they really should have spoken to Angelo Dundee, uh, uh, which they may have done at the time, but it may have been worth speaking to him at this, is that there was an accusation that Angelo Dundee loosened the top rope (laughs) (laughs) to give Ali a bit, only by a little, but to give more of a lean back to lessen the chance of Foreman hitting him in the head. Because Angelo Dundee, I mean, as good as Ali was, um, Dundee left nothing to chance. And there's multiple accusations and things in history where it's maybe Angelo Dundee may have done something here and there. You know, like Henry Cooper said, he, you know, after he knocked Ali on his ass in the next round, as soon as Ali got him in the eyes, he said, my eyes started burning. And he accused Dundee of putting some in Ali's gloves when he was in the corner. You know what I mean? But yeah. it was a credible accusation that Angelo Dundee loosened the top rope. <laughs> it took like an inch of slack off the top rope. But I just, you know, I mean, again, you couldn't you couldn't write it. You know, you couldn't write that story. It's the kind of thing where like, if they did it in like the WWE, it'd be like, oh, for God's sake. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because this whole, but he psyched him out. He absolutely psyched him out. There's a wonderful musical motif of that. Um, you know, that uh, there's a local performer who was doing that sort of like that sharp um, intake breath beat thing. And it plays as Foreman's coming down the plane steps in desire that and there's that woman like breathing in and out to the beat. And then Plimpton's talking about the succubus, you know, like the, the um, what was it? It's the witch, isn't it? Yeah, the sh- uh, was it the sh- I can't remember the word he used. Shaman witch, something. Yeah, I can't remember exactly the name. Sh- Shakia. Yeah. Cafe or something. Yeah, something like that. Similar, similar like that. But he said that he went to see Mobutu's um for was it Ali. Ali went to see for um uh, Mobutu's like personal, you know, witch doctor advisor who said that the woman with the trembling hand is going to get form and a succubus and that'll be the end of him. And uh, <laughs> Plimpton says. Uh, 
as soon as he realised that Ali was had rope doped him and was going to spring the trap, uh, I, I turned to Norman Mailer, who, who I suspect was probably a little perplexed by the remarks, and I said, "The succubus has got him." <laughs> And that refrain just sort of picks up again. So it's it's throughout the entire film. You know, it's it's very clever music editing, considering the wealth of a the soundtrack they had to use. You know, like, and, and another thing, I think it was really interesting that they used all soundcheck and live performances. Yeah, there was no records. It was all stuff that was done on the day. You know, so it's, yeah, it's so it had that authentic local like vibe, like the vibe of the time. So it's apart from the When We Were Kings song, isn't it? Yeah, I didn't really like that, but you know that's no that that was very Oscar very Beatty song. Yeah, yeah, it was very very of its time. But um, yeah, and that, it was, that was the it, only thing that sort of really took me out of it was when that yeah, started playing. I, I don't like that. But I mean, it's uh, you know, I was like, oh, we're in the nineties. Yeah, <laughs> uh, well, no, no, but a lot of people when they see that they think, oh, the film's over. <laughs> There's still quite a bit of talking after that. Yeah, because you've got the two two of my favourite bits that sort of sum it up is it's Mailer and Plimpton, isn't it? Both. Yeah telling personal stories about Muhammad Ali yeah because Plimpton does that um, beautiful line about um, he was born to fight he was born for the ring yeah and then Norman Mailer tells that story about how Ali was very complimentary to him um, yeah uh, an Esquire <laughs> dentist says oh god you look wonderful I hope I'm as active as you when I'm 62 and you know, <laughs> when you know he, what, he turned to his wife <laughs> said, are you still with that old man <laughs> See, that's pretty much the last line of the film isn't it that story yeah but that's the thing, you know what I mean? Like, you, honestly, like you could, you could charm them out the trees, Ali. Really could, you know. Like, I mean, when you consider what an incendiary figure he was at the time, you know what I mean? Like that, you know, you want to talk about being cancelled, right? <laughs> you want to talk about like a career-ending political stance to take. That was as close as you can get to it, really. You know, like refusing to fight and all the rest of it. You know, considering like throughout history, like oh, I can't think of like anybody with his stature who would. You know, refuse the draft because you know, like famously, Elvis went. Yeah. You know, like it was kind of expected. If you're called, you go, and they give you an easy schedule. Like I don't think there was any. Well, maybe actually, no, maybe you know, because he was black, maybe they would have done. But I don't think there was any person. I don't think there was any real danger of Ali going to fight because Elvis never saw Dewey. Do you know what I mean? Like. Yeah. I don't think he did, but I mean, well, they probably would have sent him as well. But I mean, you know, I just, you know, he, he did. He had so much to lose, and it's such a shame that we didn't get to see those like four years of prime Ali, you know what I mean? Like when he was yeah at his peak, you know, physical peak. But, you know, I mean as a as a record, as a historical record, I think that's as good a film there will ever be about Muhammad Ali. Because it's mostly in his own words. It's mostly candid and like, you know, there's a lot of stuff at press conferences and all the rest of it and him speaking to, you know, um audiences, you know, because I mean basically anytime the camera's on, he knows that he's speaking to huge numbers of people yeah. you know because he's addressing black america at times when he, even when he's just in his hotel room and there's only like a couple of people talking to him he says i can take these films back to america and i can show them i can show them you know there's you know you've got brothers over here and you didn't even know they were here and they don't know much about you and i can take this back to them you know there's only a couple of people there talking but he is talking in these sort of like you know because i think he you know he really believed in uh, that that was his purpose you know what i mean like he, he really did have like a mission when he was over in Zaire, it was more than just a fight to him, I think. Yeah. You know? Even though he, you know, he was a consummate showman because he was talking about all these wonderful things he was going to do, he said, but it's good to be a winner and that's why I've got to work George. You know what I mean? And it's just, oh. I, d- I just think he was a, he was a, a truly a remarkable, you know, a remarkable man. I think it's, it's as good a record of probably the best character of the 20th century, I think. Yeah. And it's like most great sports movies. It's, 
the greatest it is that comeback movie that underdog against yeah. the odds comeback movie which let's face it all i'm not a big sports fan but i love i'm a sucker for a sports movie when they do it well and it's usually because it's that underdog comeback story yeah and yeah this this was really i i think you know this was the only time really that they could have done this with Ali. yeah you know because when he was cassius clay up against sonny liston nobody knew who he was really i mean you know he, he you know he was he was that made him you know because he was really winding up Liston, do you know what I mean? To the point where I, th- I think Liston like drove his car onto like Ali's front lawn, <laughs> so angry one time or something like that. But you know, um, this was the only time they could have done that with Ali as the underdog. Really, yeah. it's the only time they could have done it, and I think it was just it was just such a just a well a well made like a beautiful looking film considering what they had to work with. You know, it got the right balance of. You know, because it could have just as easily been, you know, a documentary about Mobutu or Zaire yeah. or, you know, the sort of internecine strife of what is now the DRC. And it, again, it touched on that. It gave you it gave you the context. And, you know, and again, smartly, they had Norman Mailer, who is who was a fantastic writer, George Plimpton, the same, um, Thomas Hauser, who was Ali's biographer. You know, they had um oh god, what was his name? Um uh they had the oh, the guy who was speaking French. The 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 guy yeah, who was actually um, bombed, like, yeah. Shit, yeah, what was his name? I wrote I it down. Catch the name. Um but they had him giving local context to it. You know, they had Spike Lee. And I because I remember the first time I think I thought fucking Spike Lee. I thought what the fuck's what Spike <laughs> Lee got to do anything. But you know, he was he he was an important yeah, he was an important voice to have, you know, like, yeah. like you know, a contemporary Black American voice who could give you the, um, you know, the the context for the wider political view that people took of Ali at the time. I don't know. I, I just think you know, if if people haven't seen it, I would just say like, you know, I I don't like boxing. I don't care for boxing. I don't care about boxing at all. But it is, you know, as good a story as you as you'll find. I think. Yeah. You know, like they said, you couldn't have written it. You know, it's just a yeah. marvelous story. It's just that, yeah. that bit. I get you, every time I see, it, I get chills. That that moment where you can see that, uh, you know, the foreman's, you know, because when he starts out, he's proper, he's turning Ali into paste against the rope, <laughs> and then they fast forward a couple of rounds, and these punches are looking awfully strained, and you can see the moment Ali, because Ali's like looking him up and down, he's thinking, right now, and then bang, 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 down he goes, and he never throws the last punch, you know. As, as Mailer said, you know, he didn't want to ruin the the perfect image of yeah, form careening towards like a half-assed this clumsy or... punch. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, no, I just no, I just think it was a like you know I I know that this is two sports documentaries <laughs> I've talked about now that have been on the show, but you know I just think it was honestly I think it was a marvelous yeah marvelous show really do you know a, a marvelous showing. Yeah, I mean, I think that pretty much covers the film, unless you've got anything else you wanted to And I mean, usually I ask about sequels and franchises and remakes <laughs> and that sort of thing, but... <laughs> yeah, I mean... Uh, I mean, there's uh, potentially the grains for a special edition Blu-ray. Well, they no, did a Criterion one, didn't they? But I don't think they've done a Blu-ray of this. There's a Criterion Blu-ray in America, but not over here. Ah, I have to get that. Uh, but um, th- there kind of was a sequel to this. 
because there was a film out and I think it was 2011 called Soul Power, which was more yeah. about the festival, where they used a lot of the festival footage and they were talking about that side of things. And that's that's good in its own way. Obviously, it's not as exciting as when we were kings. It's a bit more sort of it's a bit more of a slower, you know, it's more of like a concert film. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's like a companion piece to. Well, yeah, because that's what a lot of this footage was meant to be for originally, wasn't it? It Was a concert film. Yeah, yeah, it was meant originally yeah. intention. That's what all this footage was shot for. It's um, it's it's crazy thinking it that all that footage of like Ali, you know, running with. Um, running through Kinshasa with you know like you know native residents of Zaire you know and then they're just running alongside him as the sun's coming up you know there's that perfect yeah. golden light on Ali's face and you know he's like shaking kids hands and like getting those Ali Bumaye chants going and all that stuff was filmed as filler for a concert film yeah you know I mean I'm glad the concert film got made in the end but I mean my god you want to talk about you know not realising what you got until later Jesus Christ yeah. <laughs> That's it. Sometimes it's just waiting for the right editor and director to bring it together, isn't it? It's... Yeah, I mean, I think yeah, I think Leon Gast was like, you know, he did a remarkable job. I mean, obviously, yeah, again, you know, the 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 the, the photo montage and the song at nearly the end was a bit you know, whatever, but you know, it was it was over its time. But I just think you know, I mean, I, <clears throat> I struggle with when we were kings because I, I try and think like, is is this a good film? Or do I just love the story? Do you know what I mean? Like, would I watch anything about this story of the the triumphant return of the inconceivably underdog Muhammad Ali, the most charismatic man in the world, against this, you know, seemingly invincible killer, right? I just think, you know, is it a good film or do I just like the story? And I think it is a good film because I've seen other things about um, The Rumble in the Jungle, and they just haven't got the balance, you know. Like it's it's everything. It's the music, it's the the concert footage, it's the it's the way that they intersperse footage of like you know the journalists getting their shots and stuff with you know the the real people's lives on the ground in Zaire. It's the footage of you know it's it's, it's Mailer and Plimpton as much as anything. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like they are. Um, it would be a much poorer film if they hadn't had that. I'm really glad they got them as like the the sort of like you know the ersatz narrators of the film i think it would have been a much poorer film without them yeah you know? but i mean yeah. you know it's just I, yeah so I, I do struggle with it but i think it is a remarkable film because it, it, it's, it's a film i can watch whenever because it's short it's only 75 minutes it could be three hours i'd watch a three-hour cut of when we were kings i'd watch a 10-hour cut you know i'd watch anything they could get me on when we were kings because i think it's just it's just such a good document of a, you know, an unbelievable lightning in a bottle moment. Do you know what I mean? I just, yeah. I just can't believe it. I just really can't believe that that not only did that happen for real, but we managed to get as good a film out of it as this with all the, you know, like that sound check recording of doing it to death, you know, which is way better than any recorded version of it. You know, if you've ever yeah. listened to Wesley and the JBs, version of um funky good time it's rubbish compared to that version of when we were kings yeah. it's got none of the energy you can feel it in the music you know even the bb king stuff which is like slower blues based it doesn't have you know there's a there's like an electricity to that version of doing it to death you know and you can see it on james brown's face and then in, in his band's performance you know what i mean it's just everything about it it was just it was just something in the air back then do you know what i mean i would i wish i could have seen it for real you know oh god i would have loved to have seen it for real yeah it's um yeah i mean it's like um 
Mark Mode always says that, you know, the measure of a great documentary is that you're interested in it, whether you're it engages you, whether you're interested in the subject matter or not. Yeah. And very much like I say, I wouldn't have, probably wouldn't ever have got around to watching this if it wasn't for the fact we were made to watch it as part of film studies. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I wouldn't have watched. Yeah. If it had been any, like, you know. I think if it if it had been about even if it was like uh, you know even if the same thing had happened, which it probably wouldn't have because Ali was as I said uniquely yeah smart in regards to how he psyched Foreman out before he even got in the ring and then tricked him because and this is the other thing that wasn't the first time he did the rope dope we did the rope dope against Fraser and it didn't work so people were like he's never going to be stupid enough to try that again you know it didn't work against Fraser because he tried it too late. Right. So, you know, he, you know, Foreman, I just don't think thought he was going to do it. But, you know, I think it, if it had been about somebody else, it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have held my interest at all. You know yeah. what I mean? It, I think it still would have been, a, you know, a, a decent documentary in that. But, you know, it was a combination of a good, a well made, a competently made good documentary. But, you know, it, it was an exceptional documentary made out of exceptional source material. You know? Yeah, yeah definitely. It, um, <coughs> but awesome all right well like i say i think yeah we've sort of nailed that so are you check out when we were kings on, on bbc iplayer if you haven't already yeah like i say i, I didn't notice a leave-in date when i downloaded it which they usually put on sky so it hopefully it'll be on there for a little while so yeah. <laughs> be the day before this comes <laughs> out <laughs> but yeah um yeah, I usually end these with the Pivo questions, but you've done those already, so mm-hmm. me and Andy came up with some new ones that I will throw at you, if that's all right. <laughs> yeah, sure. So, all right, then. It's it's called Movie of Your Life. Okay. Um, so, if they made a movie of your life, who is playing you? Uh, can I pick someone dead? Yeah. Philip yeah, Seymour Hoffman. Nice. Because he's kind of got the look, you know? Yeah. I, th- I think he has, anyway. No offence to, to the surviving family of Philip Seymour. Philip Seymour Hoffman's family are like, oh, fuck off. <laughs> um, all right, uh, what genre would it be in? Oh, I don't know. Um, oh, what genre would it be in? Um, <laughs> um, oh, like, like one of those, I think it would be like... Um, it would be like when we were kings, but all the footage of me would be like, you know, filmed after the fact with like, you know, like Philip Seymour Hoffman would be like a dramatization. That's it. <laughs> it would be real voiceover. <laughs> it would be Philip Seymour Hoffman doing dramatizations of me um, doing impressions of my father's friends on the computer and all the other things I'm famous for. <laughs> <laughs> all right. And who's directing this film? Uh, who's directing the film? Uh, oh God, I've I've boxed myself into a corner here by saying a dramatization. Shit, probably Leon Gast. No, um, <laughs> <laughs> who's directing the film? God damn, God's a question. Luke. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Luke Bader. He he probably yeah. I mean, he's the only director I trust with anything I've done. So. <laughs> right then. Who's playing your love interest? Now, to specify, this doesn't necessarily have to be your actual real-life wife being played by somebody else. You can go that way if you want, but if you want to, for the purposes of this story, you have a fictional... 
because I'm aware that when you're married, you don't want to. I don't want to paint you into that box. So sure, <laughs> I was like, you, you said what, fucking what? <laughs> what? What are you doing to me, mate? <laughs> Jesus, this house has got very thin walls. <laughs> now, um, who plays my message? Um, oh God, who plays the message? Um, uh, oh, let's think now. God damn, that's really difficult. <laughs> uh, let's, let's, let's say for the purposes of the story, it's a fictional. Oh, uh, like a fi- all right, okay. So yes, yeah, so it's not a drama. So it's always like a, a fictional. Yeah. Um, like a yeah. Like so, an, you know, like when they amalgamate certain characters and just create somebody for the role rather than. Yeah, so they they they, they don't want to get the rights, so they do yeah. like, like they're doing with Billy Joel at the minute. Um, yeah. Oh God, he plays the love interest. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Um, God damn, that's really tricky. So it's gonna be so it's gonna be somebody about Philip Seymour Hoffman's age. <laughs> How old well, we Philip? can we can age up or down. It's we're, yeah, we're gonna do the Irishman thing to Philip yeah. Seymour Hoffman to make him much younger than he was when he passed. Um, oh God, God, that is bloody tricky. Oof. Well, the thing is, I, I suppose the thing is, like, what kind of character would it be, right? I mean, that's the real question. Yeah. What would my wife be like in a fictionalized version of my <laughs> life? Um, I think she'd probably still be supportive of what I do. Um. Uh, I'm just gonna have to pick. I'm just gonna have to pick one. Okay, just Roseanne Barr. Okay. <laughs> Just the, first, just the first woman comedian that came to mind, Ellen DeGeneres. Because <laughs> I mean, you're going very problematic with because of her, <laughs> because of her warm nature. Uh, my, my wife has also yelled at, <laughs> yelled at her employees. All right, then who's doing the soundtrack? Either the original score or like a Prince-type Batman soundtrack songs made up for the film. Who's doing the score? Or like I say, a collection of original songs. Collection of original songs for a film about my life. The topic of which is TBD. <laughs> um, oh god, who would do the soundtrack for that? I mean, the the temptation is to just pick somebody whose music I really like. It's like John Fahey or something, or Phil Elvirum. But um, who's doing the soundtrack? Hmm. Um. God damn it! Have you asked these questions to anybody before? Am I getting? Yeah, this, yeah, a couple of people. Have they struggled like this? Um. Not not this badly. Not I mean. this badly. Oh, dear. Nobody in a blind panic pulled Roseanne Barr out of a hat. Ah oh, dear me! <laughs> Who's doing the soundtrack of a film about my life, like a Prince style Batman soundtrack? Prince. I love Prince. Prince. Yeah, I'll take yeah. Prince. Yeah. And. All right, then finally, what's the title of this film? Oh, um, a long hard slog. The John Tucker story. <laughs> That's the title. It's 18 rated because of full frontal male nudity from the start, all the way through to the end. And scenes of Roseanne Barr. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> awesome. So we've got a film with a dead lead, dead soundtrack. Two potential love interests that are problematic at best. Yeah. 
I'm not sure Luke wants this directing gig, to be honest. <laughs> no, I mean, probably not. <laughs> so you've died and left in this specific request. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, dear. All right, so sort of what's going on with you? What you got in the pipeline? Anything people should be looking out for? Or? Well, not a fucking biopic, because I imagine. Um <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, Bald is still sort of doing the rounds on the, on the um, film festival circuit at the minute. Um, there's a few other... Uh, I always hate doing this, but it's like, you know, big thing is coming soon. I, I, yeah, no, I know. But, like, but I've, got a lot, I've, got, I've got things that are sort of like in development at the minute. Like, hopefully people seem like more comics and stuff for me soon. I've done a few little guest things for other people's um, books. Um, there's a few sort of... Um, there's a few sort of like compilation pieces coming out from a few names that you may know if you're listening to this. And I've got a couple of pages and a couple of those. Um, God, what else have I got going on? Any more this foul earth in the pipeline? Or? When I think, of, yeah, when I think of, well, I don't know about that. I don't know. Maybe, maybe. I want to say maybe to that. I think, like, I've been toying around with the idea of doing something like longer. Yeah. Like a longer thing like a concept album, like a War of the Worlds, Jeff Wayne type situation, this Foul Earth concept album. But who knows whether I'll actually... To be honest, it, it, what it really comes down to is what have I got time for, and at the minute the answer to that is nothing. Well, yeah. So nothing planned. <laughs> no big plans at the minute. Mainly just getting in from work, putting the kids to bed, and then going to bed myself. That's mainly what i got going on. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, that's the dream. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, I'm perfectly happy with it. But yeah, just don't expect anything new from me if you're listening. <laughs> awesome. Well, like I say, I'll put the whenever, I'll retweet whenever Bowl's showing at festivals and, and I'll put the links. Yeah, I might I might just start a Ponzi scheme or something just to just to keep things interesting, you know? <laughs> <laughs> just start a cryptocurrency or just start a fraudulent website or something. Yeah, yeah, that that's... That's that's a way to go. Keep me in Pokemon cards. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, like I say, I'll put all links in the show notes and that. But yeah, cheers for coming on and talking about the film. Yeah, no, always a pleasure, Stu. And that was when we were kings. I'd like to thank John for joining me on the episode and talking about the film. Um, be sure to check out his work online. As always, I'll put all the links in the show notes. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode and be bothered to do so, please give the episode a share and tell your friends about it. Or don't, it's up to you. Also, like I say at the top, if you want to keep the conversation going, please post comments wherever you see these episodes posted, either on our socials, in the Am I Not Facebook group, or, like I say, wherever you see this episode posted. Uh, in the meantime, please rope it up back here again in two weeks for another movie chat, when myself and Tom Stewart will be talking about The Green Mile. And that's it for this one, so until next time, thanks for listening, and keep floating like a butterfly. Bye for now. Hey, you out, sucker!